0: From the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm Andy Cullison.
1: And I'm Kate Berry. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story.
0: Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can explain why the philosopher Immanuel Kant would say, you can't always go with the consequences.
1: And if you'd like what you've been hearing, aside from that pun, and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. We're back again with our framework series. Andy, do you want to remind everyone what we're doing here?
0: Absolutely. So uh, what we normally do on the show is take a case, uh, zero in on a hidden ethical issue, or maybe not so hidden, but then we unpack that issue and outline different moral or ethical reasons that someone might have for their stance. And instead of that, we're going to introduce you to one of six moral frameworks help you see why some people will think that framework is really important, and then give you examples of when it might be in play in a workplace setting. Almost everything that would make someone upset about a situation will likely fall under one of these six frameworks. So knowing what those categories are and seeing examples of how they might be in play can really help you Do this work on your own when you find yourself in a difficult moral dilemma. And so today, that framework is called the inner thoughts framework.
1: Right. And we've already covered consequences. So how is inner thoughts different from consequences?
0: Inner thoughts is going to be different from consequences. And in fact, most of the rest of the frameworks all share a similarity, which is they arose From philosophers throughout history who have thought, you know what, consequences are not the only thing that matters when we think about the nature of right and wrong. And if you're just a pure consequentialist, if you always go with the consequences, you're going to be missing morally important dimensions. And so the inner thoughts framework basically says there are cases where what's going on inside your head. That's why we call it the inner thoughts framework. What's going on on inside your head can sometimes make a moral difference, even if the action in question would have the best consequences.
1: Okay, so things going on inside your head, what kind of things fall under this category of inner thoughts?
0: So there's a few different theories that have been put out there about things we need to be keeping an eye out for. So one has to do with motives and intentions. Another has to do with what our attitudes are toward others when we act. And that can be a little bit different than motives and intentions. And then the third one has to do with what we know. So again, knowledge being like beliefs inside our head that are true, right? What our beliefs are, what our knowledge is, what our internal evidence is, all that stuff can make a difference in the rightness or wrongness of some actions even if the consequences go in the positive direction. Uh, So I don't know, I think it's easiest just to go through all three of those in turn and we can see these kinds of things really do come up in interesting ways in the workplace all the time.
1: Great, so should we start with motives and intentions?
0: Uh, That sounds good to me. So let's get to work. Okay. To understand the motives and intentions framework, I think it's good to actually start with some non-work examples.
1: Andy, that seems a little bit weird. We're a workplace podcast.
0: So here's why I think it's good to start with non-work examples. One, people tend to reason differently about moral issues when thinking about moral issues inside their field. And they've done studies. Wall Street investment bankers are hardcore consequences people uh, when you give them moral issues about investment banking ethics, right? They'll say like, oh, it's all about just maximizing return on investment, right? It's all about maximizing shareholder value. Consequences, 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 consequences. But when you give them similar scenarios outside of business, suddenly they're like, whoa, 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 like what's going on? Your your intentions aren't pure there. Uh, why would you think that's an okay thing to do? Or You know, like suddenly they become really, really concerned about rights, which is going to be in a framework that we do in a later episode. And so the way to get someone to see a moral issue inside the workplace is actually for them to see a very similar issue outside the workplace. And then it puts pressure on them like, well, whoa, I, I, I didn't go with the consequences in that scenario. Like, why would I go with the consequences always? in in this workplace setting. So that's one important reason is a lot of people think that when you think about the ethics of your field, like insurance or sales, that you should just focus on case studies involving sales, but that actually doesn't refine the moral compass, so to speak, as well. And so it's actually helpful to see things outside of the workplace. And then also for our listeners, if you think these frameworks are important, which I I hope you will, these examples will help you motivate that when you're talking with your colleagues, right? Like if you have non-workplace examples, you can say, come on, like we don't always go with the consequences. Like in these areas, we think this stuff matters morally. How does it suddenly magically go away uh, when we think about ethics in a workplace setting? That's a little odd. So it's a useful tool to work up to thinking about ethical issues within the workplace.
1: Okay. So when we're at work, we kind of have the consequences blinders on. But if we're outside of work, that we might be more open to that there are other things to consider when there's an ethical issue. Exactly. All right. So what kind of non-work example do you have for me?
0: This one's actually easier to introduce to folks because I, I really the schema for a dilemma between motives and intentions and consequences is just to think about a time where someone could do an enormous amount of good, but inside they had vicious or impure motives or intentions. So uh, a favorite example of mine is there's this uh, 90s romantic comedy called 10 Things I Hate About You. Love it. Great, right? And and Heath Ledger is like one of the main characters and um
1: Julia Stiles.
0: Julia Stiles and then
1: Joseph Gordon-Levitt.
0: Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you know this movie. All right. <laughs> um so so Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character wants to ask Julia Stiles' younger sister To prom, but the dad won't let the younger sister go to prom unless Julia Stiles goes to prom. So Joseph Gordon Levitt's character and some other characters pay Heath Ledger to ask Julia Stiles to prom so that Joseph Gordon Levitt's character can ask her younger sister to prom. And Heath Ledger takes them up on the offer, asks her to prom. It falls apart, but then uh, because she finds out, but then They fall in love and let's just pretend they go on to live happily ever after, right? So wonderful consequences, right? The consequences played out right. And let's just assume that that really was the path to the best consequences. But you might still think that initial action of asking her under those conditions was kind of cruel. And she was rightfully upset about it. And even though you could imagine them living happily ever after, Julia Stiles' character 20 years later could say, hey, I love you, but that was still messed up what you did, right? I mean, it was still, you know, it's still the way, the way this got about, you know, I'm happy it worked out, but you did wrong uh, when we initially got together.
1: Yeah, you you do good, but it's almost by accident. You didn't mean for that to happen. So let's bring it to the workplace. Uh, do you have a workplace example of someone's motivations or their intentions not really matching up with their actions in a way that would make it a problem if we're trying to think about something ethically?
0: Yeah. OK, so here's one case. Imagine someone wants to get ahead and they falsely accuse a coworker of stealing. OK. But it turns out they really were stealing. Right. They were lucky to get it right. They were accidentally right. It comes out that that was clearly a false allegation. It seems like that still warrants disciplinary action, but I could imagine the person saying, "Oh, come on, right? Like, they actually were stealing. I, I caught the bad guy." It gets more complicated if there's just a teensy bit of evidence that they were stealing, right? So they might even lean on that and, like, and as a matter of fact, there already was some suspicion there. But in your position as the leader, you might think that bit of evidence alone was not enough to, like. Boldly proclaim what you were proclaiming and and insisting on investigation or whatever. So, again, you can see that's a case where the consequences might have turned out okay. So, you might think the consequences turned out okay there, but the person did something shady and that merits some kind of disciplinary action.
1: Right. It still matters that they were mostly interested in getting that person out of the business or getting or getting their job or their office, whatever, and that their main goal wasn't catching a thief. And they maybe didn't care if that person was a thief at all.
0: So we actually have a ton of episodes where this tension between motives and intentions and the consequences uh, come into play. So one that I can think of is the CCing the boss episode where people CC a boss and it looks like an innocent thing and they might achieve some good ends from that. But what they're really doing is they have these vicious intentions to like get the person in trouble with the boss.
1: In that episode, we talked a lot about people sort of pretending that this wouldn't have an effect, but knowing that it actually does sort of chip away at their credibility. All the examples we've mentioned so far for these uh, motives and inner thoughts have been pretty, Devious, that trying to get someone's job by accusing them of stealing or uh, maliciously CCing someone's boss to get them in trouble. Does that mean when we're dealing with inner thoughts, it's always going to be this really devious, evil sort of person who's not being very honest about their intentions?
0: No, it doesn't have to be that way at all. It doesn't have to be someone with evil intentions. In fact, where I think this becomes a more salient moral dilemma is let's say you're in a situation where a course of action really benefits you. But it might also benefit the company, right? So it's going to have good consequences. But you're the decision maker. And it just so happens that the course of action that benefits the company also benefits you personally in significant ways. So like, how about hiring your brother-in-law to like another department, right? And you could make the decision to have your brother-in-law be hired. Or you could influence that decision because so-and-so owes you a favor, right? And so sort of like, it really helps you personally if your brother-in-law is hired. But let's say your brother-in-law really is like the best person for the job. So it's like, a, it would benefit the company as well.
1: Right, he's a superstar.
0: People might see you as having done something selfish, even if it goes well. So you have to be leery of that. The, the intentions, the motives framework is gonna be red hot in their head when they see you have probably hired your brother-in-law, right? And so you want to be careful there. And there's some things you can do. And I'll say something about that. But the other thing is, not only is it going to be really on the minds of people who see this decision, uh, and they're going to see your intentions as not being pure, even if things went well, but, you know, there are all sorts of cognitive biases that we have to be really careful of. And the fact that it benefits you by hiring your brother-in-law. It could cloud your judgments about whether or not it's going to be good for the company because you're going to be more inclined to think it's good for the company if it's good for you. You're going to be more inclined to look at the evidence that this will be good for the company, and you'll be more inclined to discount the evidence. So you've got to be really leery of this for two reasons. One, for implicit biases in your own case, but also the perception of you having gone with a decision because of impure motives, not thinking about the interests of the company. And and I think there are things you can do to try and avoid this. Like what? You might just for yourself set a higher evidential bar for whether or not it's good for the company, right? Knowing that you're going to be inclined to discount evidence that it's not a good idea and favor evidence that says it is a good idea. That's a way to kind of help check for motivated reasoning. That helps with the bias case, but if you're worried about other people seeing you go with impure motives by hiring your brother-in-law, you could leave the decision out of your hands. You could recuse yourself. You could, you could go to maybe a leader of another sales team and say, hey, it would be nice if someone else made that decision and not me because I'm worried about motivated reasoning. And I will trust your judgment. If you tell me I don't think it's good for the company, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to have any hard feelings. I just, I want an honest, independent assessment.
1: But if your brother-in-law blows away a hiring committee that you're not on, then it was probably a good choice.
0: Exactly. And then if people are like, whoa, why'd you hire your brother-in-law? I was like, actually, good question. Because I was so worried about people thinking I had impure motives or intentions, I just completely took myself out of the decision. And I let someone else decide.
1: That's a good explanation of motives and intentions, but you mentioned also attitudes towards others.
0: Yeah, so there's this other school of thought that what your attitudes are toward others when you act or interact with them in a certain way. And there's there's sort of two examples of this. They both come from this philosopher Immanuel Kant, early modern German philosopher. He had this thing that was called the what he called the categorical imperative, which was like sort of his rule of thumb for figuring out what's right and wrong. He would say things like, persons are ends in themselves, not things, not instruments of mere animal amusement, and thus should never be treated as a means to another's end. And what he really meant is people shouldn't be used as pawns. So they should be valued for their own sake and shouldn't be used as tools or pawns for someone else's goals.
1: Well, hearing you talk about using people as pawns made me think of dating. Uh, (laughs) so I can imagine that if you realized that you didn't really like the person you were dating anymore and you were pretty sure you were going to break up with them, but their parents were paying for a vacation to Hawaii and you were like, I think I'll wait until after my vacation to Hawaii to break up with my significant other. That might be that you're using them basically as a plane ticket to Hawaii rather than as your partner.
0: Yep, Absolutely. In fact, uh, there's a a good maybe workplace example of this is treating an administrative assistant kind of like a personal genie, where it's sort of like at, at any moment, whenever you need something, no matter how trivial it is, like interrupting them in terms of what they're doing at that moment and, and asking for the thing where, you know, you're, you're just you're treating them as a tool or a pawn for your own thing. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? They're my administrative assistant. That's the thing they're supposed to assist. So when I need assistance, it's okay for me to ask for assistance. But I think people can go too far with that mentality and create work environments that are just really difficult and unproductive and unnecessarily so. Like, you know, you might go instead of interrupting, like, can you do this? It's like, hey, I have a couple of things, but if you're in the middle of something could you just come see me when you're at a good stopping point or when you wrap up whatever it is you're doing, right? Then you're actually taking their interest into account. You're not treating them as a tool or a pawn for your own purposes.
1: Yeah, that makes sense
0: and and the the reason I categorize this as sort of different than motives and intentions is that's a way of treating someone as a tool or a pawn without necessarily having overt vicious motives or intentions. It's really a kind of carelessness or a lack of consideration that leads you to have this attitude that I can ask this person at any time to do whatever it is I need in the moment.
1: And I can see this being a particular problem at work because you do pay people to do things for you. And so it may feel like not so much of a violation of some sort of treatment of them, right? That that Treating them as pawns. I I can imagine if you decided, oh, there's a new market opening up and we need someone in a new state. And then you could feel like, well, it is my prerogative as boss to ask someone to relocate, to move to that state. And I can see why someone would feel like that's totally reasonable, even though telling someone that would totally upend their life and is not really considering that they've got a whole lot of other stuff going on.
0: Yep. And if the only thing that matters to you are consequences, then it's going to be easy to think, oh, the decision's obvious. That'll maximize profitability. Then so-and-so is going to Atlanta.
1: Well, it sounded like Kant had other ways of stating the categorical imperative other than the persons as ends.
0: Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, So another popular one that gets talked about a lot if you were to take like an intro to ethics class is um, what's called the universalizability account. Now, that's a mouthful as well. And the fancy jargony way he said it was act on only those maxims that you can consistently will as universal law. So what Kant was really getting at, and this is something that's really intuitive to people, we get really angry when people treat themselves as a special exception to a way in which they are relying on everybody else to do, right? You know, I'm thinking cutting in line, for example. Why, why like cutting in line... That doesn't really hurt anybody all that much. One person cutting in line is not that big a deal, right? Right. But boy, that person is treating themselves as a special exception like I can cut in line, but they would be furious if everybody else did that to them and that right? If they cut in line and then sort of everyone was like, "Well, no. No. No." Like everyone behind them cut them and put them at the back of the line, they'd be furious. So they're they're acting in a certain way that they kind of depend on everybody else not Doing. And so non work examples sort of abound anytime you have what's called a collective action problem. A collective action problem is where it's in everybody's interests to behave a certain way, but it's in each person's individual personal self interest to not behave that way. So think about addressing climate change. It's in all of our interests if everybody recycles, reduces their carbon footprint. But it's in each of our interests, as long as everybody else does it, it's in each of our interests to not do that thing, right? If everybody else is worried about their carbon footprint and recycling, then it doesn't matter if I don't recycle, right? As long as everybody else does it. So I'm treating myself as a special exception. Now let's transition and, and think about some workplace examples where people treat themselves as a special exception and maybe things go well, but it still feels like there's something that would upset people about that situation. Uh, do Do you have thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I can imagine that if every time I had an IT problem, I went to the office and instead of taking a ticket like I'm supposed to and waiting in line, I just say, no, 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 do it right now. That like, I don't wanna wait, just fix it right now. Can't you just look at it right now? Can't you just come look at my printer? And that it's really convenient for me and if they only make that exception for me, then that's great. But if everyone, instead of taking a ticket and waiting, just jumped on the first IT person they saw and dragged them away to fix their problem, IT would never get to the rest of us.
0: Uh, That's a great example. And in fact, there are several podcast episodes that we've done. One that I'm thinking of in particular is the equality versus equity episode. And the central issue there was when people hit kind of brick walls trying to do something, Uh, And it's, you know, you get the, well, if I say yes to you, I have to say yes to everyone. And, And basically what they're saying implicitly is, look, you're asking me to treat you as a kind of special exception to something that we do expect of everybody else. And the thing I like about that episode is we have a conversation where it seems like sometimes you should side with Kant on this issue and not get treated as a special exception. And and other times you should get treated like a special exception, but you need to come up with a principled reason why you're not actually a special exception, why you would get treated in a certain way. And so I think that's a really good episode where we do kind of a deep dive into an issue where this Kant's idea of universalizability or not, being treated as a special exception comes up.
1: So we've talked about motivations and intent. We've talked about not using people as a means to an end. And we've talked about universalizing that and not treating yourself as an expe- a special exception and not holding yourself to the same standard that you hold everyone else to. You mentioned the last one was knowledge.
0: Yes, knowledge. This is, this is another big one. And so this belongs in the inner thoughts category because your beliefs are inner thoughts. And when you have knowledge about something, it's it's a belief that you have that counts as that knowledge. So there are cases where lack of knowledge is mitigating, where it can mitigate blame. So like if you, if you didn't know there was someone behind the door when you swung it open and hit them in the face and hurt them badly, right? You might think, that's a very different scenario, even though you caused a lot of damage, than if like there was a glass little viewing thing and you saw the person and you're like, I don't care, I'm in a rush, right? And you just, you, you push it in and you hurt them anyway, right? Your, your lack of knowledge is mitigating. We, we tend to think that's not as bad.
1: You are less at fault because you didn't see them behind the door, where if you did, then you absolutely intentionally hurt them.
0: Yeah. So that's a case where the consequences turned out badly, but what was going on inside your head? affected whether we should think that that was really wrong or not. Mm -hmm. There's a flip to it, too, where if if someone does an enormous amount of good, but they had no idea what it was they were doing was about to do that enormous amount of good, it's like, well, I mean, do we really give them a whole lot of praise for that? They were kind of lucky that they did that thing that was so good.
1: So if you gave someone an antidote to a poison, but you didn't actually realize it was the antidote, you wouldn't say, oh my gosh, you saved my life. You'd go, what did you think you were giving me?
0: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so uh, workplace examples of this might be, let's say someone misses a sales goal because of uh, bad, but usually reliable information, right? So they had really, really good reasons to think that this thing was gonna turn out okay, but it turned out to be bad information and they, they missed the sales goal. Whereas they had done their homework, they had gathered a lot of evidence. And that, again, that's all stuff going on inside their head. Whereas if someone misses the sales goal, but they didn't even bother to do any research or homework and get the knowledge base required, we, we tend to think there's something worse, morally worse, about missing goals because you're just intellectually careless uh, versus missing goals when you did do diligence and research and you just happen to get misleading information in a one-off case.
1: So it seems like sometimes a lack of knowledge, so if there's something missing from your inner thoughts, actually makes some actions that are bad more acceptable.
0: So there there are also cases where a lack of knowledge or evidence is really damning. These are cases where maybe you act on a hunch or go with your gut because you just feel like this is the right way to go. But you could have easily gathered evidence and, and known for sure that this was the right way to go. So you just act on a feeling. And you ended up being right. Someone might rightfully say, look, I know that turned out okay, but boy, it sure could have turned out not okay. And you could have easily just checked. You could have easily verified some of the data and you didn't bother to do that when it was right there. Like all you had to do was fire up the computer and open up that one report from that other division. And you're like, no, nah, I don't need their report. Right? I mean, like, but that's like an easy thing to do. You you might think there's something wrong there, even if the person got the consequences right.
1: And if it went poorly, that in addition to the bad consequences, they might even be more culpable because they also were intellectually lazy or didn't put any legwork, didn't do due diligence, and so they sort of failed on two fronts.
0: There's a there's another way in which I think our knowledge base can affect the rightness or wrongness or something. And there there are some philosophers and ethicists who think that the, the degree of evidence that you need to justify a decision increases when the stakes get high. So if the stakes are super, super high, then the idea is you need more evidence than you usually would need in order to count as knowing something they'll even say like the standards for knowledge go up like you need more evidence to declare knowledge when the stakes are really really high so other ways in which you might get yourself into trouble is relying on the usual methods for justifying a decision or a sales decision but when the stakes are really high someone might say whoa 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 i I know we normally Accept that as good evidence for for decisions about where to place stores, but the stakes were way higher here, and like getting it wrong here would have been disastrous. And so, for me to think it's okay that you did what you did, no, like the the standards for knowledge are, are much much higher. And so, you might think that that's another way in which what's going on inside your head can matter.
1: And for the inner thoughts framework it would not matter, even if it turned out well, that if you maybe didn't meet that high standard of knowledge, you've probably still failed in some way.
0: The important questions to ask ourselves when deciding how to act really is like sort of what is our evidence, right? Do do we have the knowledge that we need? So I actually think there is an interesting dilemma to be mindful of That has to do with the two ways in which knowledge can affect rightness or wrongness that we've been discussing. So the first one was cases where lack of knowledge is mitigating and the cases where lack of knowledge is, is damning because it would be easy, I think, when things didn't go well, right, with a sales goal or something for a leader to instantly judge that we are in a situation where more research was required. So the idea is like you missed your sales goal and uh I was and they're like yeah but like I relied on the report from Tom and and Tom usually gets it right but I'm sorry there was a typo in there and I we, we call him no typo Tom for a reason. Uh, so like what's wrong is like no y- you you did not do due diligence. You should have really investigated to make sure that Tom was reliable in this particular case, right? So because sometimes lack of knowledge is mitigating and sometimes it's damning, I think it's easy when it's a case where we should regard it as mitigating to slip into because the consequences didn't go well, thinking the person is in a situation where it's damning. So you shifted the standards for evidence when the standards for evidence back when the decision was made just shouldn't have been shifted. And it's kind of like, you know, they say no one likes a Monday morning quarterback. It's kind of like, that's what you're doing. You've now seen that it's gone bad. And the fact that it's gone bad is clouding or biasing your ability to sort of go back in time. Think about when that person made that decision and the circumstances then. And we all know full well that everybody would trust no typo Tom, right?
1: Right. It means that you can't really tell the difference between an honest mistake and a lack of due diligence.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I think that's one where it's easy to have our judgment clouded. So we want these episodes to sort of function as providing you with useful tools to do some of this work on your own. And that the two main things we'd like you to be able to do is how do you get someone to see that these frameworks that don't always prioritize consequences are important? And so in this case, I think it's good to remember for yourself, Outside the workplace, we tend to think that motives, intentions, attitudes, knowledge, all these inner thoughts matter morally in some cases, even if the consequences go in a good direction. That's good to remember for yourself. And if you're having a conversation with someone who is really pushing consequences, it might be helpful to remind them of that in some kind of casual way. Like, say, look, you know, in ordinary life, we think, Motives and intentions matter. Like, why wouldn't we think that matters here? Right? Some something along those lines. Or if it's about knowledge, like in ordinary life, we think that like if someone accidentally does something that they didn't know would cause bad consequences, we shouldn't be so hard on them. Why would we be any different here? Even though they miss sales goals, right? So that that's that's a kind of simple way to sort of get someone on board with the idea of they see the framework outside in a casual way, and then you quickly apply it to the situation at hand. And then to just be on the lookout for moral dilemmas whenever you're in a situation where you feel as if something is not right if we just go with the consequences but you're having a hard time sort of articulating what that is there's a series of questions you can ask yourself. So, one, are there any motives or intentions in myself or, you know, in the people who are engaging in the action that I'm worried about that that might affect the moral status of this action in question are their attitudes apparently pure or are my own pure or uh, is someone uh, being treated as a tool or a pawn? or is someone or yourself treating yourself as a kind of special exception to a way you you expect everyone to be? And then you know with the knowledge one just you know think about that. what is the knowledge base here? Does a difference in knowledge? make a difference in how right or wrong I would think this thing is. And maybe maybe something's going on with the knowledge base here. So those are some things you can do to get someone to take seriously the idea that inner thoughts are an important framework to consider. And those are questions you can ask yourself that will make it easier for you to spot when inner thoughts are in play, when you have this sneaking suspicion that like maybe going with the consequences here is not the way to go. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison.
1: And I'm Kate Berry. If you have a dilemma or tension that you're dealing with in the workplace, email me at katherineberry at and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air.
0: I really hope you take Kate up on that offer. I also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work.
1: If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org/getethics2work. That's all one word: get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePauw alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePauw University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.